I don't know if you had a chance to, to see the vice presidential debates uh, between Biden and Palin, but it was intriguing to watch. I got to watch. It's one of the only debates I've actually been able to see. And uh, it was, on the one hand, intriguing, and at other points it was kind of entertaining. Uh, but there was one part that I thought was encouraging, and that was it was neat to see two people who have different ideas and differ speaking to one another and disagreeing with respect. And I thought that was commendable. It's, it's a quality that we don't seem to have these days. It's a quality that you won't see in the uh, letters to the editor of the Daily Republic. People being able to dialogue with respect. That was something that I appreciated. But one of the things that was a little bit confusing was at different points, the different opponents brought up statements and numbers and statistics uh, regarding the opponent that you could tell they disagreed with, as if someone got the, the stats or the numbers or the statements wrong on a number of different uh, ideas or, or, or different points in the debate. And, uh, and I remember sitting back thinking, well, I wonder who's actually right. Now, if you're biased, and you happen to be a Democrat, then of course you think the Republican fudges the numbers. And if you're biased and you happen to be a Republican, you think it's always the Democrat who fudges the numbers. But it is really difficult, um, unless you want to burn lots of hours and do lots of reading and research to find out who exactly was right, it's difficult to determine with any level of certainty who actually was right and who was wrong. Kind of reminds me a little bit of a, a great aunt and a great uncle that I once had. Uh, I had an Uncle Dan and Aunt Mary, and they lived well up into their 90s. In fact, she lived in 99, he lived in 97. They had been married over 70 years, and to listen to them talk was, um, it was a, somewhere between a circus and, and entertainment. Uh, because my, my uncle, he always had a great sense of humor. He would, he would, he would start off into a story and he'd say something like, yeah, I was back in 55 when we went to Europe, and, in September, and she would butt in and she'd say, Dear, it wasn't 55, it was 65, and it wasn't September, it was June. And my, uh, my great uncle would just roll his eyes, he'd look at me and kind of mumble under his breath, I can't win for losing. And then he'd go on with the story. He's the one who taught me that the woman is always right, even when she's wrong. That was, that was, you know, I could just hardly keep from laughing. I never knew who was right and who was wrong, so was it 55 or 65? Was it September or June? I don't know. Uh, it was about four weeks ago that John Barry, our worship pastor, and me and, and the guitar player Joe Hendricks went out and grabbed the ladder and we, we took this big 21-foot banner and we, we roped it to a couple trees. And, uh, and John said to me, he looked at the bungee cords, he looked at the rope, he looked at the zip ties, and he, and, and he thought, wow, this is Fairfield, there's a lot of wind in Fairfield. And he says, Danny, this thing won't last a day. He says, this is going to come apart, this is going to be shredded by the wind in Fairfield. Well, it has been there for four weeks, and it is not shredded. And John actually came to me and said, you know what? You were right. And you know, I just couldn't hear enough of that from John, you know? <laughs> I was right. I was right. But uh, what goes around comes around, and, and um, a couple weeks later, we had the church picnic. And John said, how should, we, how should we stage the worship? Where should we have people sit? And I said, you know, we should have them sit right out in front of the gazebo, right out there. I mean, that's away from the tables, away from the barbecues, away from where things would be distracting. Is that right, John? And John said to me, he says, you know, they're not going to sit there because it's sunny there. They're going to sit in the shade over here. I said, no, they won't. They'll sit in the sun. They'll sit where they're supposed to sit. And all of you came and you sat in the shade. And I had to confess to you, John, that I was wrong. And I'm sure you enjoyed that little moment in the sun. <laughs> Well, sometimes being right or wrong uh, is irrelevant. 
like being right or wrong as to how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie, tootsie Pop. Who really cares? doesn't really make a difference. But there are other things that if you're wrong about, then it's devastating. Like being wrong about who you should marry, uh, being wrong about what is right and what is wrong, morally speaking. Um, a big one is being right about who God is. Uh, if you get who God is wrong, and more importantly, what He has done to secure your soul for eternal life, then, then that's, that's eternally damaging. That's one of those things you have to get right. Not so that you can say arrogantly, I'm right. It doesn't have to do with arrogance. It has to do with getting who God is right because He revealed Himself to us. And one of the things you have to get right about God is the fact that He is always right. God is always right. That's the God of, of Scripture. He is always right. Not only in the sense that everything He says conforms to reality, that is to say, when God says there is a place of judgment called hell, then I believe what he says corresponds to reality, and there is such a place. I have to believe that, because he is always right. He's not only right, though, in what he says conforming to reality, he is right in his being and his character. That is, he is upright, or he is righteous in everything he does. Now, you could, there are a number of different synonyms you can use. You can use righteous, or just, or even the word holy overlaps. And it is this concept of God's righteousness and holiness that is the attribute that we want to lift up for us to see. Um, it is one of those attributes, the holiness and righteousness of God, that causes angels in Isaiah chapter 6 to cover their eyes and their feet, as if God is so sacred and so pure that angels themselves who are perfect cannot gaze upon Him. That there are living creatures, at least in the vision of, of Revelation chapter 4 and 5, whose 24-7 job is to sing holy, 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 and I don't think they ever get bored because God's holiness and righteousness is so incredibly amazing. So that is what we were, are endeavoring to lift up um, this evening, is, is the righteousness of God. But I want to say up front that the righteousness of God, the fact that He is always right and just, is a bit of a double-edged sword. It is something that is gloriously wonderful, and at the same time, it, is, it can be horrific because of what it causes God then to do. On the one hand, it's good news. On the other hand, it's bad news. It is, uh, the righteousness of God is like a stone that crushes some and gives life to others. So with that said, let me read uh, Psalm 145, verse 17. Now, the psalm is an amazing song because it celebrates and praises God for His, His power, for His understanding, for His works, for His glory, for His kingdom, for His compassion. And then you get to verse 17 and it says this, The Lord is righteous in all His ways and loving toward all He has made. It says there, The Lord is righteous in all His ways and loving toward all He has made. It's a unique verse because it couples to what seems like contrary things. The righteousness of God or the justice of God and the love of God. It talks about the fact that everything or every way or manner or action or work of God is righteous. God is righteous in all that He does. Not some of what He does or much of what He does, but all that He does is righteous. At the same time, God loves everything He's made. So righteousness and love, and I hope by the time you get to the, we get to the end, you'll see how both of those come together in a, in, a, in, a, in a rather extraordinary way. 
So God is, in the first part of that verse, God is righteous in all that he does. Everything. Every work, every action, every word, everything is righteous. Not only is every deed righteous that the Lord does, but Psalm 11 verse 7 tells us the Lord is righteous, which means that he is righteous and he acts righteously. So from everlasting to everlasting, God is righteous in who he is and everything that he does. Now in the Hebrew conception of righteousness, at least as it's applied to people, for someone to be righteous, it means that they conform their lives to the standard of God's will. So, for example, in the Old Testament, for a person to be righteous meant that they conformed their lives to what God had revealed in the law of Moses. So, if someone was to be righteous, they were to love the Lord God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They were to trust Him and they were to fear Him. And out of that, they were to have no other gods before them. They were to not make graven images. They were not to um, take the Lord's name in vain or cheat one another or commit adultery and so forth. That constitutes righteousness on a human level. That is, humans, if they are to be righteous before God, must conform their lives to the external standard of God's law. But that is not true of the Lord and His righteousness. God does not conform Himself to any external standard outside Himself because God Himself is the standard of righteousness. God is not compelled by a list of rules or regulations to do right. He, by definition, is righteous. And He is the rule of righteousness in the Old Testament and He is the rule of righteousness to which we must conform in the New Testament. But that particular imprint of righteousness comes to us in the person of Jesus, to whom we should and must conform ourselves. All that to say that God is righteous in who He is and everything that He does. So by the time human history reaches its destination point, and contrary to popular belief, humanity is going somewhere. We're not just sailing about randomly by chance into a universe with an uncertain future, global warming somehow drowning us all. It is going somewhere. It has a destination point. And when we reach that destination point, according to the end of the book of the Bible, people will be singing songs that ascribe and affirm that everything the Lord has done in history has been righteous. Songs like chapter 15, verses 3 and following, where it says, Great and marvelous are your deeds. These are the people of God singing. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Another song that says, And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And there's a lot of dark parts in Revelation. But at the end, it says, in all of these songs, it says, Lord, you were righteous and just and upright in everything that you have done. Which tells me that through every twisted path of history, through every bright and dark providence of history, when it's seen at the end, when we see the variegated mosaic of history, we will see that God was gloriously right and just in everything that He did. He never did wrong. No one at the end of history will be able to point at the Lord and say, You were unfair. You did that wrong. You were responsible for that. That's the righteousness of God. And to that we might say, Amen. God is right in all that He does. He is just. He is holy in everything. Not once faltering. But what I'd like to do at this particular time is I'd like to take this truth of the righteousness of God and I would like to thrust it into the flesh of life. 
in a way that might be a little bit uncomfortable. But that's the whole point of taking the Bible and understanding a truth is to somehow thrust it into the flesh of the heart and life. Because I think when it comes right down to it, there's a lot of people that have a problem with this truth. That God is righteous and just in everything that He does. Based on the collective experience of people that I know, I know that they have a difficulty with this. That is, it poses certain problems. An experiential problem, a philosophical problem, and a theological problem. On the experiential level, it's one thing to say, God, you are right and just in everything that you have done when the blessings of God's grace have filled your life with success, good relationships, and relative peace with your family. It's an entirely different thing when you have had a gang member shoot your son, robbing you of his future, to be able to say, God is just and righteous in everything that He does. When evil has just gotten really personal and really deep and profoundly painful in your own life, then it's a little bit more difficult to say, Lord, you're righteous in everything that you do? Or the young woman whose mind is, and heart has been branded by repeated abuse as a child, and then she loathes herself as a result of that and comes to wonder, how, how can the Lord be good and just and righteous in all that he does. It's an experiential issue. Or the young man who comes home to find his, his wife in bed with another man. It, that's the time when the truth, this truth, is really hard to trust. This is like thrusting this truth into the flesh of life, into the heart. How is it that a person experiencing those kinds of things when evil gets personal in your life, how is it that you can in any way relate to the righteousness of the Lord? That's the experiential problem. Cousin to it is the philosophical problem. Same basic problem, just one deals with it philosophically and logically, the other one deals with it in terms of our experience and our pain. It's uh, universally acknowledged, I think, by most theologians, biblical scholars, and even laymen alike, that the biggest problem, biggest philosophical problem that Christianity deals with is the problem of evil. Uh, there have been scores of books written on how to reconcile the fact that God is righteous in all that he does. He's right, he's upright, and just. And at the same time, he is all-powerful, and yet evil exists. So, case in point, how is it that a God is perfectly righteous in everything that he does, stand by while the Holocaust unfolds, when he has the power to do something about it? And that philosophical problem of evil, the righteousness of God and the all-powerful nature of God, uh, that has caused a lot of people to say, I just can't believe. And so either they say, listen, if God's there, he's not good, or if he's good, he's, he doesn't have the power to change things. That's, that's the philosophical issue that a lot of people face when it comes to the righteousness of God. How can God be righteous and create a universe in which he knew evil would exist? That's a tough one. Now, how do you relate? How, how, how does a person who, who struggles with that philosophical issue relate to the righteousness of God? Well, one avenue you can take is to buy those books, get on Amazon.com, look up Christianity, Problem of Evil, and you'll get a huge list. And you can start reading these books, and some of them have very detailed arguments. I've read a couple of them, and they are hard to follow. And if you happen to be a rationalist person, that's what you need to do, then perhaps you need to do that. 
But for me, when it all comes down to it, the only way you can relate our experience, the evil we see around us to the righteousness of God, is with the simple word trust. That is trust. And an awareness that you are a creature, not a creator. Awareness that you are human, not divine. The awareness that our perspective is so minuscule compared to the vast greatness of who God is. That with our narrow and limited perspective, we can't begin to grasp what Paul called the unsearchable, unfathomable ways of God. And yet, what's interesting is we try to. And we evaluate and we judge Him based upon a limited perspective. So with our eyes pressed up against the dark glass of our experience and philosophy, we sit in judgment on God, whose ways and purposes elude even the angels. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. The angels of heaven don't fully understand the ways of the Lord, and yet they are perfect and far brighter than we are. I have, for me personally, I'm just speaking for me, I have a lot more room in my theology, my understanding of God for mystery and the unknown that I have ever had in my life. Ten years ago, I thought I had to figure everything out, everything out to believe, uh, to believe it. I have to figure out how does this evil thing work and so forth. You know, I don't know that I believe that anymore. Now that's not to say we shouldn't study hard, we shouldn't examine argumentation, carefully search the scriptures and put together thoughts in a systematic and coherent way. I am all for that. Yet at the same time, in the end, this book is full of mystery too because it's dealing with the divine. And I'm encouraged to find out, I was reading a little blurb on a, a science um, little subscription that I have, that scientists now say, that they have no idea where 95% of the energy and mass are in our universe. That what we see, both the energy and also the matter, is composes only 5%. Have you read at all about this big, huge laboratory that's built underground that's really, really deep to shield it from all these um, cosmic rays and so forth so they can do this testing? Um, I believe it's called a Large Hadron Collider. And anyway, it's, it's built to search for subatomic particles that you can't see. And one of the things they're looking for is this theoretical dark energy and dark matter which they say composes 95% of the universe because we can't explain why the universe is expanding. What kind of energy is out there that allows the, the universe to expand? They can't account for it. Now scientists, people who are rational, can say that we have no idea where 95% of the mass and energy of the universe is. How much more are we going to fully understand of the God who created all that? See, there's just room for it in there. It's that God is much bigger than I am. He's God, I am not. And so, in, it, when it, in the end, it, it really does come down to just, you have to, you have to trust it, I guess, is, is the issue. What we call the problem of evil, whether it's experiential or it's philosophical, it's a problem not for God. It's not a problem for Him. It's just a problem for us because we want to reduce Him into logical categories and understand everything, and we can't. We don't have the capacity, nor do we have the right to evaluate and judge him. That's the whole point of the book of Job. I've referenced it before. I'll reference it again. That's the whole point. It's not just about a guy who endured a lot of bad stuff and did good. I mean, that's just the first three chapters. The whole rest of the book about it is about him arguing with God. How can you be righteous and allow me to suffer evil? That's the whole thing. The ancients struggled with this. And at the end of the book, there's no answer. 
Just questions. Lord, why? And the Lord just responds with other questions. I'll tell you what. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Uh, can you call forth the clouds? Do you know the way to the light? And have you, have you trod in the deep? I didn't think so, Job. So sit down and be quiet. To think that we can understand the ways of the Lord as it relates to evil and all of the difficulties and complexities of life is like thinking that my almost three-year-old little son Isaac can grasp the complexities of the global economy and figure out why everything is messed up and then provide an answer when my son can't even go to the bathroom by himself yet. But I'm just saying, on, on the scale of divinity, our best thoughts at best are complete foolishness to him. It's, it's just that we don't even register on the scale of divinity, so how can we possibly think that we can grasp how and why things happen? I, that's not to say you shouldn't seek it out and you can't cry out to the Lord, why, you know, in faith. But when it comes right down to it, it comes down to a humble trust, a hum, humility to say, I, I don't understand it all. And I know I'll never understand it all. But I trust you. It's painful. It's painful as heck. But I trust you. I trust that you're righteous and you're good in what you're doing. That's, that really is the solution to those two. That doesn't satisfy the skeptic or the rationalist. But then, no answer really will. The real answer just comes down to, I, I trust the Lord, and I trust that He's righteous in all His ways. Which leads to the third and, and the final problem. That is the theological problem. It's different, entirely different problem. But the problem is this, that if God, as it says in verse 17, is righteous in all His ways, and in a few verses before that, says that, um, that His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, that tells us that He is a king, the sovereign of the universe, who does everything righteously, which means He, by nature of who He is, by His own standard of His own character, must in the end judge. Righteousness produces judgment when it comes in contact with corruption. Um, what God has called each of us to, the standard um, of righteousness, to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to trust Him and to, and to treat others as we would treat ourselves, um, is, a, is, a, is a law that all of us break every week. I know by Scripture, it says that no one's righteous, not even one, There's, you can scour the earth. A righteous man is an extinct species. I know by experience that there's not a week that goes by that I don't sin in some shape, way, shape, or form, that I don't have a bitter thought about somebody, or I don't say a harsh or inconsiderate word to my, my wife, or grow impatient with my kid. I do. And I know that. Which means if there is no alternative way of justice, then ultimately I come before a righteous and holy God, and He will have to, by nature of His character, have to judge me. We'll have to do that. You know the scripture. That's the end of the story. When history arrives at its destination, that there is a day in which John tells us, I saw a great white throne and him who seated on who seated on it, earth and sky fled from his presence. There was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. All books were opened, another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in, the, in it, and death and Hades gave up dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. That's what the sovereign, righteous judge of the universe must do by nature of his character. And that's kind of a haunting verse, haunting thought. The books are opened. I don't know if that's just literal or symbolic, because it's permanently ingrained in the mind of God. And every act, every evil will be brought to light. And you can't escape it. People who try to commit suicide, tie a big old huge weight around you and drown yourself in the depth of the sea, and everything will give up the dead. It is, it's because it's called in old language the rest reckoning, when you know all accounts are made right and God is justified in doing so. Now that truth is on the one hand good news, on the ha other hand it's, it's bad news. It's good news because I think in, 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 innately all of us desire justice. There's no way any of us would live in Fairfield if people were allowed to do whatever they wanted, there was no law, no law enforcement, and no judicial branch represented here. We would not want to live here if, if people could just do whatever they want. I mean, it's hard enough to live here now. But imagine if there were no laws. We don't like that kind of thing. We want and desire justices insofar as it, 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 it allows there to be a, a semblance of peace. We want justice when we feel personally injured. I was driving down the road about two weeks ago. I was getting on the freeway, and it was one of those on-ramps where it reduces from two lanes down to one lane. Those are dangerous, you know? Two lanes down to one lane. You're trying to rev up and speed up so you can get onto the freeway at the speed of, of the traffic. And so you're trying to speed up. Well, this happened to be a day in which there was thick traffic. All two lanes trying to squeeze into one, and it was going really slow. And there was this lady, two cars in front of me, who was driving a little Mazda, little compact car. And there was this guy next to her in a Nissan Xterra. And she was not about to let him in. She's like closing the space bumper to bumper. Like two seconds really matters, you know? But she did not want to let him in. She thought it was unfair that he get let in. So she was bumper to bumper. And that ticked the guy in the Xterra off. And he has the bigger car. So he just, he just jerked the wheel and came over towards her. She jerked her wheel. She stopped, had to let him in. And then I saw him do something I've never seen anybody do before. With all of this traffic behind him waiting to get on the freeway, he stopped his car, put it in park, and turned on the hazards. I, I just tell you, at that moment, I was ticked. At that moment, I fantasized. I fantasized about shoving my Bronco into four-wheel drive and driving him into the bushes. I just, oh, I just wanted it. Do you ever see fried green tomatoes? You know, and the lady just, we're younger, I'm older and have more insurance. She just bashed that little thing. That's what I felt like in that moment. <coughs> I wanted justice. I'm looking around. Is there a cop around? No, there's no cop. In the end, he gets away with it. I just wanted somebody to be there to, you know, to pull the guy over. I wanted more than a ticket. I'd like him to just haul him off the track. I can't believe he stopped for the car in park and turned on his hazards because he was just mad. Well, luckily, I had enough space. I just jerked the wheel and I went around him. I wanted to speak in sign language, but I didn't. All that to say, all that to say, I, we want justice. Provided the finger doesn't point at us, because let's flip it around a little bit. You're late to work, and you know the only way that you can get to work is to fly down the highway at breakneck speed, breaking the law. You're looking around for what? That you hope you won't see. A cop. So in the one instance, you want justice, and in the other instance, you want to evade justice. Of course, I know that none of you speed. 
they never speed going to work. It just goes to show us we do want justice, but always on our terms. We do. We can't live without it, but we want it on our terms. We either want to be absolved of it, have the guy walk up and say, well, you were doing 75 and a 25, but I'll let you off this time. Or when it's somebody who cuts you off, you want the cop there. It's just interesting we're conflicted and inconsistent people when it comes to justice. We want it, but when it points at us, we don't want it. And when it comes to the Lord, there is no favoritism, no impartiality, and God is not like a cop. He is everywhere and sees and records everything in his memory. He knows it all. He not only knows the act, he knows the intent behind it. And he will, by nature of who he is, bring all that to court. And I know some people take comfort in a bad theology as to why God will accept you. Some people have this scales approach. And you think, well, there's a scale. You know what a scale is. It's like, this is a good scale, this is a bad scale. If I put, if, if, if in the end of my life, all of the good things I've done outweigh all of the bad things and the good is better than the bad, then God will accept me because I'm basically a good person. The problem with that approach is all of the good stuff you owed to God to begin with. He, he demanded it of us. He commanded it of us as his citizens of his kingdom. This is what you owe me. This is your reasonable service to love one another, to love me. That means you have nothing to offer. This doesn't amount to anything to the Lord. And it doesn't pay off the debt. So if you think that that's the approach, it's not going to work. You're going to be horrifically surprised to find that that approach is, is fundamentally unbiblical. Not to mention an offense to the Lord. To think that you can come with something you already owe Him and try and pay Him off. That doesn't make sense. I know some people think, well, maybe the Lord has some kind of a community service program, you know? It's like, I, I've done some bad stuff in my life, but I, I trust that He'll let me work it off, you know, in a kind of purgatory sort of way. Maybe 50 years down there, I'll work it off and I'll, I'll be in good graces again. as if you can work it off. And, and that doesn't, doesn't work either. It just, it just doesn't work. Because the day of justice will come, and, and the text tells us God is righteous in all His ways. He's righteous in all His ways. God cannot arbitrarily forgive you. He can't. Not without satisfying His justice, because He is perfectly righteous. He, by definition, is righteous. He can't do it. He can't forgive you without first satisfying justice. And of course, that, that brings us to where to where God's righteousness comes into full view. And you know where that is. That's the cross. It's the whole point of the execution of Jesus. God sending His Son so that He might divert what is rightfully ours, namely judgment, onto His Son. And that's what Paul says. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So God did the righteous thing, a different alternative venting of God's righteous anger on the Son instead of us. That is to say, God was righteous, and, and in so doing, He can forgive you. Because whatever you have done that's wrong has already been satisfied, and justice has already been met. That's the whole cross. That's the logic of the gospel in the Bible. That's why the cross is so central. And the, 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 the crucifixion of Jesus. The judgment that was due us and will come was diverted 
and completely satisfied on Him. At the same time that happens, we find God's love screaming through because what we couldn't do, because we can't self-atone, God did. God in sending His Son, for God so loved the world. And then Son, out of love for His Father and love for us, coming and voluntarily taking the hit, taking one for the team. So you have both of these things in this verse. I mean, what does it say? It says is it that the Lord is righteous in all His ways. Righteous, He will bring to justice everything at the same time. And loving to all that He has made. So here you have at this cross kind of these convergence of two great attributes of the Lord that come together and they explode in glory. That's what's amazing about the cross. is righteousness and love side by side so that in the death of Jesus, righteousness of God is upheld so no one can say, hey, that guy got off. It's like, no, he didn't get off. My son paid for it. At the same time, it screams the love of God because that's what motivated him to do it. A righteous and also a a, a, a loving God. And, and it's interesting to me that the, the effects of the cross uh, um, go farther than just you and me. Paul said this amazing statement, still just kind of staggers my mind, when he says that God was pleased to reconcile to Himself all things, things in heaven and things on earth through the blood of the cross. That is, God through the crucifixion would not only bring back mankind, but He would bring back and ultimately redeem all of creation, the entire universe, fulfilling this verse in Psalm 145, that here God is righteous in all of His ways at the same time, loving to all that He has made. All coming together in the cross where, where, where righteousness was proven and expressed and upheld, and the love of God was seen. That, brothers and sisters, is, is, um, is, uh, is the ground of hope. Isn't it amazing to think, actually, that in the cross we have perfect justice and unexplainable love? And here's the... I didn't mean that this isn't in my, my notes, but when I think of judgment and salvation, I think of judgment as the backdrop and salvation as the forefront. Like in a picture or painting, you have what is peripheral, and then you have what is central. And I think what God would have us read when we read the Bible is to understand that judgment is the backdrop. And it is the outer part of the portrait. What is central and most visible is the love of God for His people. Because if you reverse it and you put judgment at the center, then it seems to me you get a very dark conception of the Lord. You have to talk about judgment but in and through that judgment, the love of God breaks through. And you see a God who pursues His people and loves them enough to send His Son and die and take that diverted judgment in their place. So now, I don't know where you are. Everybody's in a different place. Your life is in a different place than mine. What is it that might be in your past, getting back to this experiential problem or the philosophical problem, some injury in your past, that you're having a hard time saying, Lord, I have a hard time believing you were just in that. I think what the Lord would want to say through this is, I am righteous in all my ways. Will you trust me? You don't need to understand it. You just need to trust me. You need to surrender those things that you continue to hold on to and use to judge me. And you need to surrender them in faith to me because I love you and I am righteous in everything that I do. Or you could be someone who's just on the flip side has caused great injury. Could be in your marriage, could be to a child. 
And you wonder, how could God accept me? In that case, you need to understand that the righteous God in love diverted completely. If you trust Him, His judgment meant for you and deserved by you onto the Son because He loves you and you have to be willing to trust that love. The righteousness of God and the love of God, both of which are the foundations of our faith. Will you this evening, just in, as we continue in our worship, try and just pray, Lord, help me to surrender whatever it is I don't trust you with and whatever in the past or in the present. Will you pray to him and say, will you help me to understand the love that breaks through at the cross, that I would actually believe that you love me, not just say it in my head? Will you do that? Father, I pray that you would make that possible. And perhaps tonight some chains will be broken and some hearts will be opened to see that you are an amazing God whose thoughts are way beyond us, but that you would give us the heart of trust and faith to know that you are good and loving and righteous in everything that you do. Thank you for Jesus and thank you for resolving the theological problem of our sinfulness and your righteousness through the Son of God. In Jesus' name.